Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. I'm excited to welcome to the show a prolific filmmaker whose work has impacted the world of horror and cult cinema in many ways. He's worked with the likes of Brian De Palma and played Sundance, and as a filmmaker, he's made such notable projects as Oblivion, Elvira's Haunted Hills, and served as the director of the hit gay series Dante's Cove. And recently, he was nominated for multiple Rondo Awards for his editorial and writing work on the Little Shop of Horrors issue all about Frankenstein, a true story. Please welcome to the show writer, director, editor, and author, Sam Irvin. Hi, Michael. I'm really glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Sam, I am delighted to have you here today. It's <laughs> a real pleasure. You've been having a really busy year lately. You just got back from shooting a film, right? Yes. Uh, I was doing a lifetime thriller, and it was filming in Louisville, Kentucky. And I'm actually going back there in a few days to do yet another one. So it's uh, it's kind of one after the other these days. Back to Louisville? Yes, right back to Louisville. Wow, it must be the place. My th- it'll be my third one in the last six months in Louisville. So uh, there's a tax credit there. And it, uh, as long as... Uh, doesn't get taken away. There's a little controversy about that in the state right now. But uh, for, at the moment, it's a great place to shoot movies. Well, that's good. Uh, is, it, is it cold there this time of year? It was very cold on this last film I did that we finished about a week ago. And uh, it was also very rainy. And I left on, uh, let's see, February 24th um, in the morning. And by nighttime, there was f- huge floods and tornadoes. So I got out of there just in the nick of time. <laughs> oh, only to pack up and go back. And ha- exactly. <laughs> well, why don't we kick off the show the same way I start every show with the same first question I ask every guest. And it's simply this. Why horror? And you can interpret that however you want. Why does it appeal to you? Why do you think horror connects with people? What's the draw? But why horror? Well, I, as a kid, I was always drawn to horror films, and I had no idea why necessarily. I just was. I, uh, from the very youngest age, my parents were very um, progressive, I guess, in allowing me to watch horror films on TV from the youngest age I can even remember. And my dad was, uh, he owned movie theaters. So I was able, my playground was hanging out at the, at the movie theater, like the little kid in Cinema Paradiso. (laughs) And I'd be in the the projection booth. I'd be helping pop popcorn, whatever. But I got to see movies over and over and over back in the days, you know, we're talking the 1960s before VHS or any, you know, where you, where people could actually have movies that they could rewatch over and over at home. That just wasn't happening then. So um, to be able to see them multiple times was really quite a treasure for me as a as a budding film fan and filmmaker. And um, so I grew up in that atmosphere, but I was always drawn to the horror movies most of all, and especially British horror, Hammer films, Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing. I also loved uh, American ones like the Roger Corman, Vincent Price, Edgar Allan Poe movies, which I later got to spoof in uh, Elvira's Haunted Hills. And um, all of those things were just, uh, I I just had this incredible uh, affinity for. And as I got older, and I'm sure you've heard this from many, many people, you start to realize it's it's the outsider syndrome. Right. And it's it's all about, um, you know, identifying with the outsider and 
these creatures in these movies who like the Frankenstein monster, who is really not a monster. It's the doctor, <laughs> Dr. Right. Frankenstein, who's the monster or the villagers with the torches are the monsters. The, the, the creature himself is, is the, the innocent one. And so all of those things as a closeted gay child and then teenager growing up, um, I didn't realize it, but that's why I was drawn to those things. I, I realize now for sure. Do you recall if there was a definitive moment where you realized, oh, this might be the correlation? Yes, it was. Um, it was it was this film that I fell in love with in the 70s called Frankenstein, the true story. It was a two part NBC Universal Frankenstein film. Mm -hmm. uh, and. At the time I saw it, it absolutely, I was 17, it absolutely blew me away. And I recognized that it had what I thought was a lot of gay subtext. And I thought, good Lord, this is really sexy. The creature is, in the beginning, is gorgeous. And it's only after his skin starts to deteriorate later on that he becomes, you know, sort of horrifying looking to people. Right. But he's very innocent and he's very sexy. And the Dr. Frankenstein is very sexy, played by Leonard Whiting, who was 22 at the time. And there was this sort of undercurrent of attraction between the doctor and the creature. And there was even a whole Pygmalion thing of, you know, Henry Higgins sort of training this uh, this creature to be able to pass in high society as, as a gentleman. And um I, I just I, I knew there was something behind all of that, but I wasn't 100 percent sure. And at the time I was publishing and editing a fanzine called Bizarre and I put it on the cover and I started to contact people who were involved in the film and sort of investigating it. I went to England and I interviewed um, Jane Seymour. And, and how old are you at this point? 17. So you traveled and, to England at 17 yeah, to yeah, interview James I bamboozled my parents and a, a graduation, <laughs> high school graduation present to send me to England. And uh, so, yeah, it was incredible. But um, so I just started investigating that film. And little did I know is, as, you know, the article that I did for my fanzine was was pretty surface and mostly a review of the movie. But as years went on, I just kept on, kept my ears peeled about the movie. And the more and more that I found out about it and I realized, oh, the screenwriters are Christopher Isherwood and Don Bacardi, who I later learned are this iconic gay couple. Right. And then, uh, you know, um, four decades go by uh, and I get asked, do I want to guest edit this n new issue of Little Shop of Horrors on the making of the film? And I'm like, I sure do. And I started um, then getting interviews. I interviewed Don Bacardi, who instantly told me, of course, it was all this gay subtext that we were putting into it on purpose. And right. the producer of the film, Hans Stromberg Jr., was gay and he was fanning the flames of it. And everything was being sort of put into the film under the radar. And the James Mason character was actually based on Dr. Praetorius from The Bride of Frankenstein, who was one of mainstream cinema's first gay characters. And right. he, you know, and it's, and it's very obvious when you watch the film that the James Mason character is gay. 
and the David McCallum character is gay. And there it's like, whoa, it's this film is just absolutely loaded. And uh, so at some point, I don't know, you know, I, it, it didn't take me four decades to come to the conclusion. But, uh, you know, at some point, I think in my 20s, I came out when I was 25. I, th- I began to realize this whole this whole sort of outsider thing and and started to realize that that's why I have this affinity for these films. Absolutely. What I love is that your realization of of that outsiderness and the otherness that you connected to horror began with this movie that sort of has been a through line through your whole career. It has been, yeah. Because when you tell the story of going to England uh, at 17 to talk to Jane Seymour, and now fast forward, as you said, four decades later, and you have just edited and authored and put together this issue of Little Shop of Horrors that is, as far as I know, the most comprehensive text on the film. <laughs> it uh, may be the most comprehensive text on any film. <laughs> it's like it's it's like a book. It really is. It really is. And I've been watching on social media how this singular issue of a magazine, well, really a film publication, has has been traveling to the hands of filmmakers around the globe you have a wonderful gallery of 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 really (laughs) notable individuals holding up this this document and as i mentioned in the introduction uh your dedication and love of this movie has just uh received multiple nominations for the rondo hatton award which is very prestigious world award in the world of horror uh that's got to be a feeling of triumph that this this thing that planted the seed that kind of led to all these other amazing things that you've done has sort of full circle in a way it been this celebratory moment now. Well, it, it, I'm incredibly honored. You have no idea because this whole, this whole thing is a labor of love. It's not, it wasn't paid a dime and I wouldn't want to be, it's all just something that I do on the side for, for my own satisfaction. And if, if other people love reading it that's fantastic and it's and it's been welcomed with open arms i wasn't sure it would be you know i thought that a lot of horror fans who aren't necessarily gay might be offended or taken aback by you know and and accuse me of like pushing a gay agenda but i as i said in the introduction of the magazine you know I didn't have an agenda in mind. Right. <laughs> this agenda was baked in and it was me pulling the, the, the layers away to expose it for the first time. Even I was taken aback right. by just how gay this whole enterprise was. In fact, the, the producer, Hans Stromberg Jr., call, he, he called themselves the Lavender Hill Mob. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, But what's also so exciting about it is that it's it's kind of like the best kept secret. It's the best kept secret that not that many people seem to have kept up with the film. Right. A lot of people saw it when it first aired on NBC. It was very big in the ratings. Right. I think that's important to point out to to listeners that Frankenstein: The True Story is a TV movie. Yeah. It it aired on in 1973 on network television when. Being gay was still illegal in California, and it was still considered a mental illness. I mean, right. it's absolutely crazy that they were able to get this, uh, that, to have so much gay subtext 
get through the network sensors and and be able to be aired. And um, but it's the, it's a film that really uh, inspired so many people in the industry. One of the biggest ones is Anne Rice, who I was very lucky to get to write uh, the foreword for the magazine Mm -hmm. because it was a film that completely blew her away and would directly inspired her to write Interview with the Vampire, which, of course, we all know is just laden with with gay subtext and gay, (laughs) not even subtext, but is very homoerotic. It's right up front. Yeah, Yeah. it's right up front. And um, but what's also exciting um, is that talk about full circle. Guillermo del Toro, who just a couple nights ago won Best Director and Best Picture for Shape of Water, gave an interview for Sight and Sound magazine this month, the March 2018 issue, in which he talks about the things that inspired him to do Shape of Water. Obviously, Creature from the Black Lagoon. Sure. Several other things, but he said foremost... Importantly for him, the biggest inspiration, and he even said this in his acceptance speech at the BAFTAs, was Mary Shelley's novel, Frankenstein, and James Whale's 1931 movie of Frankenstein. And in Sight and Sound, he goes on to say, and there's a little known gem called Frankenstein, the true story that actually doesn't follow the novel. And the title is misleading because it says it's a a true story and it's not really true to the book and it's not really true. Right. But yet he feels gets closest in spirit to the novel and calls it um, quirky, brilliant and moving and really goes on this whole paragraph talking, you know, about his love of Frankenstein, the true story. And for for the, the timing of this to happen right now of him winning the Oscar of him winning yeah. the Oscar and talking about the best picture being partly inspired by this film is incredibly gratifying to know that I'm not the only one who's <laughs> sure but and you know what I think is interesting too because obviously we're talking about the the queer connection to otherness and how especially with this written yes. by Isherwood and Bacardi there is that very obvious through line and representation in a film in a time when it wasn't necessarily allowed. Yeah. Uh, And for Del Toro to reference it, because as you know, most of us understand the word queer can mean many things, not just gay. And I think it's important to see the connection between the shape of water and Frankenstein, the true story, because whether people realize it or not, the shape of water is a queer love story. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, that it just won Best Picture. You have a movie that's representing love of otherness. Yes. And that's really all I could ask as a horror fan. No, exactly. I mean, it's, 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 again, it's all about the other. It's all about uh, erasing these, these taboos. And it's a beautiful film. I'm, I'm so happy that a monster kid like us, yeah. <laughs> has, uh, has, you know, gotten this kind of great recognition. I mean, it's really, really thrilling. Absolutely. And especially for that content. Now, you may not have a gay agenda, but I certainly do. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that's, no, and I, your love and care and curation and preservation of this film, I think, is important in ways beyond the publication. 
because we see how so many movies are lost. Yes. Uh, especially, you know, back in the era of TV movies and movies of the week where there were some truly significant strides made in features that aired on television that just sort of have got lost in time yeah. and that this movie had impact and was created by such important people uh, as the ones you mentioned uh, and is venerated by people like Anne Rice and Guillermo del Toro that you set about becoming, in my mind, the film's official historian is, is so key. <laughs> uh, so I think that, you know, the genre community, in addition to award nominations, owes you a great debt for that. Well, my goal is just to really preserve this film and bring it back to people's attention and introduce it to people who've never seen it and, you know, hope that it will be recognized. I mean, right. th I mean, this is a universal Frankenstein film. Right. How many times have we heard, you know, read articles or heard about or seen photos of even the lesser universal Frankenstein films like, right. you know, House of Frankenstein or House of Dracula when the, you know, when the series was starting to become a little hokey. And yet here's this great, very erudite, very intellectual, very interesting, um, very fresh Frankenstein film in the universal canon that is all but forgotten. And so anyway, I'm trying to write that wrong. Absolutely. Well, now, like after heaping all this praise on it, I'm going to I'm going to be an instigator because it's what I do. Uh, <laughs> clearly, if I were to say, what's your favorite Frankenstein movie? I think no one would invest an amount of time that you did in this if it was not. Well, um, to be perfectly honest, it may be my second or third favorite. Ooh, we're about to dish. Yeah. <laughs> no, um, I mean, there, in my mind, Bride of Frankenstein is the best Frankenstein film ever made. And again, it's a queer filmmaker with James Whale mm -hmm. and with a queer character in Dr. Praetorius that... Uh, that is just so iconic and so incredible. And I was incredibly lucky to be involved in a project called Gods and Monsters. Yes. With Ian McKellen playing James Whale. I was one of the executive producers of that film. And if you can imagine, all my life, Bride of Frankenstein is my favorite film. And in this movie, we get to recreate the laboratory set Right. And for a flashback sequence of James Whale on the set directing Boris Karloff and Elsa Lanchester and Colin Clive. And I mean, I mean, the days we were doing that was just unbelievable. It was it was like the culmination of everything. But I, of course, loved the, the first Frankenstein film as well, uh, which was also directed by James Whale, the 1931 Frankenstein and, uh, you know, but all, you know, the, the, those three, uh, including Frankenstein, the true story are, are my favorites for sure. Well, my instigator question was going to be, if you had to pick another Frankenstein movie, ah. be, but you did. So. Yes. There you go. Uh, and oddly enough, when I'm researching the magazine, the Hunt Stromberg Jr. who produced Frankenstein, the true story, it turns out his favorite film of all time is Bride of Frankenstein. And he's the one that wanted Praetorius to be recreated as a character in, in, the, in the film. And uh, so it just it, it just I, I felt such an affinity for just the whole spirit behind it. 
What I love about the old Universal Monster movies is that uh, in addition to being such triumphs in genre-defining films, is they're also definitive brevity is the soul of wit. People don't realize that these movies are very short. Yeah. Uh, Bride of Frankenstein, if it's more than 70 minutes, would be shocking. Yeah. But it, in that runtime, altered cinema history. Yeah. I mean, you think of all the iconic imagery and everything that comes out of that film. It's just unreal. Uh, and since you mentioned it, and it's fast forwarding a little bit on the timeline, uh, I do want to mention uh, your involvement with Gods and Monsters because talk about the times you've been involved with Frankenstein things. They've ended up going <laughs> on to be award nominated projects. Gods and Monsters got Oscar nominations. Yeah, it got several Oscar nominations and it won for best screenplay, Bill Condon, who also directed the film. And I mean, you know, it was just an incredible, incredible journey. And I was, we were all so proud of Bill and the job that he did with it. And his career has just taken off like wildfire. And oddly enough, here's another connection. He was actually going to be directing The Bride of Frankenstein but the whole sort of universal uh, monster universe kind of crashed down after The Mummy didn't do well. So I'm not sure what the status of that project is. Well, maybe Shape of Water will make uh, Universal reassess how they handle their classic monster. Lineup. I hope so. Yeah, me too. Uh, so going back to that kid who grew up around the movies at a movie theater and fell in love with them and fell in, in love with the idea of the stories and the otherness and, and, and all of that. Obviously, your passion for movies began fairly early because you found it bizarre uh, and you're already on a plane at 17. Yeah. <laughs> but do you know or recall the moment where you realized, I'm not content just watching these. I want to be part of it. Yes, I do. I was eight years old. Uh, our, my family, we grew up in North Carolina. But because of my dad's uh, connections to the movie industry through the theaters, we took a trip to California and did Disneyland and all that. But he was able to get us VI, VIP tour at Warner Brothers. And I walked onto the soundstage where they were shooting The Great Race, the Blake Edwards movie with, with Tony Curtis, Jack Lemmon, Natalie Wood. And in this gigantic tank of water, there was an iceberg. There were antique cars on it. There were wind machines creating a storm. There was rain machines. There was lightning. There was, I mean, for an eight-year-old kid, my the eyes just popped right out of my head. I thought up until that moment that if you were going to shoot a storm in a, in a, with an iceberg, you'd have to go up to the Arctic and wait for a storm. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea this could be created on a soundstage. Right. And it was just this life-changing moment. And I also got to see there was a forced perspective uh, sequence where there was a castle, a, a big, big mansion up on a hill where a big wing of it explodes. And, the, and seeing a guy who was putting, you know, the finishing touches on the roof or whatever, where, you know, the house was maybe four feet high and he's adding little things to it. And as you come down the hill at the bottom of the hill is a full size fence and gate and everything where they had a, a Bobby walking by, you know, policeman. And 
just wrapping my head around the idea that that on film would actually look like that house was full size, way farther away than it actually was. And I just couldn't believe that it would work. And of course, when I saw the film, I totally realized it worked. (laughs) So it was just the combination of that whole day. And I also got on a set um, that same day of two on a guillotine that was uh, with Dean Jones and Connie Stevens and George, Rome- I, and, uh, George Romero, uh, um, Cesar Romero. And, uh, and it was directed by the actor, William Conrad. Oh, wow. And uh, so I got to see some rear screen projection and I even got my picture taken on one of the, where we were doing, it was like an amusement park scene. And um it was just the whole day just blew my mind. And my dad had an eight millimeter home movie camera, which I promptly took out of his hands and never gave it back. And I just started <laughs> making my own films at home and using my brother as Dracula and a black beach, you know, beach towel as a cape and lots of ketchup. And, you know, the, 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 what all of us monster kids did back then and um, reading famous monsters of Filmland magazine and just, you know, all the cliches that every filmmaker who grew up in, in the sixties talks about that was me. And, and uh, I just, I had to, I wanted to be a filmmaker and by doing the magazine of, uh, Bizarre when I was a teenager enabled me to um, seek out people, interview them one on one. They would give them a reason to pay attention to me for half a minute. And it was incredible. And right. I, when I went to England, I mean, here's a perfect example. I mean, I'm such a fan of Christopher Lee from all the Hammer films and playing Dracula. So and I had written to him. I, we had conducted an interview by, you know, questionnaire for one of my earlier issues. But when I finally went to England, I, you know, had his address and he kind of knew me a, a little bit. And so I said, I'm actually here. I can't wait to meet you in person. And he said, oh, well, you have to come to lunch at Pinewood Studios. That's where I'm working today. And I go, great. So I go out there and it turns out he's filming this little movie called The Man with the Golden Gun. <laughs> wow. N- no small feature. No there. small feature. So after lunch, he goes, do you want me to give you a tour of the James Bond sets? And I'm like, uh, yeah. So <laughs> we go back and. I get to watch the whole rest of the afternoon them filming with Roger Moore and Britt Eklund and Maude Adams and meet the director, um, Guy Hamilton. And then at the end of the day, he goes, do you want to ride back in my limo to London? And I'm so sure. So we get in the back of this Rolls Royce. Already in the back is Hervé Villachez, who played his little sidekick in the movie. From Fantasy Island. From Fantasy yeah. Island. <laughs> de Plain, De Plain, who is now three sheets to the wind and starts talking about how all of the, talking about all the prostitutes he's hired since he got to London <laughs> and starts going into very, very colorful descriptions of the things that they've been doing. And Christopher Lee starts to giggle and then starts to laugh and then completely loses it to the point where he can't stop laughing. And, and now it's gotten me laughing and then he pulls himself together and then I laugh and get him laughing again. It was the funniest it was the funniest thing ever. And to just for in you know, in my mind, this is Dracula who's right. like just lost it hysterically laughing in this, in this roles. And it was, you know, how do you, you know, how do you put a value on those kinds of situations? I mean, it was, it was incredible. That's amazing. I mean, just even to be on the set 
a man with a golden gun, let alone that story. Yeah. I mean, it, I, I just was, at least back then, leading this very oddly charmed life. It was very strange. Now, I have a theory. Of course, your take is going to be different because you were on the set of a movie. So that adds to the magic of it. But I have a firm belief, and I've never actually said this in life or on the air, but I think uh, that gay people like the Roger Moore uh, movies more than most Bond. Like in the world of Bond, we may have our favorite Bond, but we can appreciate more because of the camp value that his movies yeah, have. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, I still have a soft spot for Sean Connery because he's the sexiest Bond, in my opinion. Um, and, you know, I'm a little older than you, Michael, and that was the Bond that I grew up with. Sure. However, yeah. a lot of people diss the Roger Moores, and I do love them for the camp value. And, the you know, when Grace Jones, I mean, come on. <laughs> well, that's exactly it. I mean, I, I wouldn't say that Roger Moore is definitively like the favorite bond of gays. I think we all like individually would have our favorite person. Yeah. But I think that, uh, you know, I was just on the phone with my mom the other day. I'm about to, to put my mom on blast for this. She's like, I never really got Roger Moore. And I was like... <laughs> But I did. And yeah. I feel like all of my friends who like James Bond, while we may not necessarily think those are the best Bond films, they're kind of the most fun. Yeah, in the, way, most, the most fun and most entertaining. He's yeah. the only Bond that got in full like clown drag. Yeah, yeah, for, for sure. What, for what mission? I mean, I know what the reason is, but like why that aided to it at all. Right, right. Uh, yeah, and Grace Jones. <laughs> Everything about it. I told you it would get off on tangents. Um, <laughs> So from sitting in the back of a limo with Dracula himself uh, and and huffing, uh, hoofing around the, the world uh, interviewing stars, when did you make the move to make your first film? Well, when I, I went to film school at University of South Carolina, which I refer to as USC East. <laughs> and uh, when, I, uh, when I was there, I really, really loved the films of Brian De Palma. I love Sisters. I love Phantom of the Paradise. I wanted to organize a film festival in his honor. And I decided, well, I'm just going to try to get in touch with him and see if we can get him to come out here. You know, just chutzpah, just, you know, crazy. Like, of course, it'll never happen. But why not try? Right. So I, of course, was reading the trades back then, Variety and Hollywood Reporter, and I saw that a film called Carrie was being was being cast, and it listed the casting director and the phone number. <laughs> and so I called Hollywood. Which never happens. Never now. happens. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I call Hollywood. I get into the, you know, someone answers the phone, and they go, and I said, could I speak to Brian De Palma? And they go, well, he's in he's in a casting session right now, but he's due out in about ten minutes on a for a break. Why don't you call back in ten minutes? So I call back in ten minutes. They put him right on. Now. Later, I learned that this is the most famous casting sessions ever in the history of film, where George Lucas and Brian De Palma are sitting at a table reading every kid in town for Star Wars and Carrie simultaneously. Every actor that came in read for both films. Wow. So it was this amazing casting session. I had no idea at the time. But anyway, I asked Brian if he would come. I explained who I am and that I do this fanzine and I'm this, you know, geek and groupie. And would you please come to South Carolina? Fully expecting him to say no. 
And he goes, yeah, I'm broke. I uh, need to get to New York uh, to my apartment because I need to pick up some things. If you'll give me the airfare to South Carolina, then to New York and back to L.A., I'll come. <laughs> and so I'm like, done. So <laughs> he comes out. That's how I meet him. The following summer, he's making, uh, you know, in the meantime, Carrie gets made, becomes his biggest breakthrough hit. The following summer, he's making a film called The Fury, which is a, a much bigger budgeted studio picture with 20th Century Fox, with Kirk Douglas and John Cassavetes and all-star cast, Amy Irving, everybody. And I call him up and said, during my summer break between my junior and senior year, can I come and be an intern, do anything? And he's right. like, yeah, come on up. We're shooting in Chicago. So I went up there. I immediately got an assignment from Cinefantastique to write because now I'm not doing my fanzine anymore. I've given that up because I'm too busy with school and other things. And so I get an assignment from Cinefantastique to do a journal on the making of the film, which allows me, you know, if I had just gone up there to be a production assistant or intern, you know, everybody would have ignored me and I just would have been a wallflower and right. a fly on the wall. Um, but now I had license to ask for one-on-one -on -one interviews with Kirk Douglas, John Cassavetes, all these incredible people. And so, again, my, it, it was my education. You know, right. it was like that was much more important than anything I did in college. And so it was this amazing, amazing experience. And then during my Christmas break, I convinced my parents to let me go to New York where they were editing the film. And I got to meet the editor, Paul Hirsch, who also edited Star Wars. And then I got to talk to John Williams, who was writing the score. I mean, it was just, you know, it was just, again, one of these charmed experiences. Well, in the meantime, Brian recognizes that I'm complete nutcase, you know, who's obsessed with all of this. And... He eventually asked me to be his assistant, and I worked as his assistant on Dress to Kill. I also associate produced and production managed Home Movies, which was a low-budget film that he directed with Kirk Douglas and Nancy Allen. And, um, and so, again, that was my big education. But right. I, I didn't, you know, this is all building up to I want to direct. Right. And so, eventually, I broke away and directed a, uh, a short film called Double Negative that I wrote and directed and produced on credit cards. And <laughs> Brian let me use his editing equipment when he was between films. And I got in the cast is uh, Bill Finley, who played the Phantom of the Paradise right. and the villain and sisters and Wayne Knight, who was Newman on Seinfeld and is, you know, was in Jurassic Park and is one of the interrogators in Basic Instinct. And, um, and had uh, also um, Justin Henry, who was the little kid in Kramer versus Kramer. And uh, and I had Bill Randolph, who was the cab driver in, in Dress to Kill. Anyway, put together this little film. And it was about a, a horror film director who is making a low budget horror film called Coat Hanger Massacre. A movie I would love to see. Yeah. yeah. This is back <laughs> in the days when, you know, Mommy Dearest and No More Wire Hangers. And I was trying to f think of some crazy uh, hybrid, you know, what would they be making? Okay, Coat Hanger Massacre. So uh, he finds out that his sleazy producers, which are Bill Finley and Wayne Knight, are, uh, have decided that if they steal the negative from the lab and collect the insurance money, they're going to make more money than if they try to release this 
this crazy movie. Oh, it's like the horror movie producers. Yeah, so exactly. <laughs> yeah. So the filmmaker has to beat them to the crime to save his film. And so he plants dummy negative and, you know, films them as they're breaking in and, you know, has this for, for blackmail. And, you know, it all becomes a happy ending in the end. Anyway, the film got... Uh, a good amount of attention. It got selected for Sundance, um, which did some buzz. And then it opened theatrically in New York and L.A. It played with Martin Scorsese's After Hours and John Borman's Emerald Forest. And it got reviewed by Janet Maslin in The New York Times, or gave it a, gave it a really nice review. So that was my calling card, finally. Right. And it enabled me to parlay that into getting my first feature film off the ground, which was Guilty as Charged with Rod Steiger and Heather Graham and Lauren Hutton, Isaac Hayes, Zelda Rubenstein, et cetera. And that, that brings us up to about 1990. And that's, that's really when I feel like my directing career got off the ground. And from Guilty as Charged, you kind of really hit the ground running because how many feature films have you directed? Now it's up to, uh, I've lost count. I think it's, a well, if you can't, you know, it's hard, like Dante's Cove is a TV series and, but it's like, it's about 35 projects, let's say. Right. And you have worked in a lot of different mediums. You've done features, you've worked in the TV movie space, as you mentioned, Dante's Cove, which we're going to get to shortly. Uh, It's just amazing, the output. It's sort of like you, you built it all up and then you just like... Let loose. <laughs> well, it's it's weird. I've gotten busier in recent years than I've ever been. It's it's uh, you know I wish that I had had this volume of work earlier in my career. Um, when I was doing Guilty as Charged and Oblivion and some of those, it was usually you know one movie a year if I was lucky. Right. And you know in the past twelve months, I've done five movies for television. So <laughs> it's kind of mind boggling to me the the just the quantity. But uh, but it's it's what I love to do. You know, it's just, uh, it's, it's what I've always wanted to do. No one, when I was growing up, nobody else really knew what they wanted to do. Right. And teachers at school didn't know what to do with me. I was so one track minded about film and about horror films and stuff. They just, they hadn't, they didn't know what to do with me and they tried to stifle it. They wanted me to have a more well-rounded education. And so it was always, okay, the theme of this next project is an open theme. You can write whatever you want about, except for you, Mr. Irvin, not about films or horror films. (laughs) And, and I, and it it made me really frustrated with school. I, I, I grew to hate it and couldn't wait to get out so that I could do what I really wanted to do. Well, and you showed them, you graduate high school (laughs) and you jump on a plane. (laughs) You didn't just flee school, you fled the country. Yeah. And I, you know, it's just, I was a one, you know, just determined, one track mind, nothing was going to stop me kind of thing. So let's talk a little bit, even though it's, it's into your career a bit, uh, about Dante's Cove, since you mentioned mm-hmm. it, because at the top of the conversation, we discussed how you found yourself gravitating towards horror films. Yeah. And at some point you had the realization it's because of the outsider status. Mm-hmm. It's because of the otherness. And you made the connection between your identity as a gay man and, and your interest in horror and how those things may be intertwined. So now you are presented with this opportunity to not just do a horror series but one that is 
not secretly gay, <laughs> but is openly gay. Yeah. And really, in a way, the first of its kind. Uh, so talk to me a little bit about coming to that project, because I know that because there were many horror fans who had never had a gay horror television show before, Dante's Cove still exists in the hearts of many people. And it's a very uh, it's a project that's been referenced many times over the course of this show with other guests. Well, you know, it was just a dream come true to to even be offered. It was just like, oh, my God, this is the culmination of everything for me because it combines horror and it combines openly gay characters, incredibly sexy stuff. And it was it was really pushing the envelope in its day. It was 2005, six and seven were the three seasons. And. You know, we really felt like we were part of a movement, um, if not a foundation for the movement of, you know, things that like Twilight, like um, True Blood, like all of those shows that came after us. (laughs) Um, But all of those shows ended up having gay characters and having, you know, having a lot of homoeroticism. that is obviously traceable to our show. I'm sorry, but it just is. And, uh, and we, um, I just felt like we were really kind of taking sort of at the, t- at the time we sort of joked that we were a cross between Buffy, the vampire slayer and dark shadows. And, but, but doing a very gay version of all of, of all of that and combining those things. And Tracy Scoggins, who played the lead witch in the, ours was about witches and warlocks and Tracy Scoggins, who of course came from dynasty and all of that. She was sort of like the Joan Collins of our show. And, um, and very camp and and always dressed to the nines and, and, you know, outrageous. And whenever she was asked, like, you know, what um, you know, what do you how did you what did you base your character on? She said, well, darling, it was a cross between Joan Collins and Barnabas Collins, of course. <laughs> and and that's how I thought of the series. I mean, it had its camp value with her character, but it also had very realistic gay characters um, who were and when I say realistic. OK, OK, a little fantasy. They were all absolutely gorgeous guys. Right. And and some gorgeous just lesbians as well and uh it was a very diverse cast and um but it the thing that i found most exciting about it was that up until that time most gay shows like queers folk for instance were dealing with coming out dealing with aids dealing with all sorts of political issues in our community and this was a show that was finally just going to be entertainment. It wasn't going to deal with all of those hot button topics. It was just going to be matter of fact, these are gay people who are in these situations that, that we've seen in other, uh, that we've seen straight people do in other shows, the horror shows like it, like whether it's Buffy or dark shadows or whatever. Now it's our turn. Right. <laughs> and that was so exciting to me. It was, it was like, wow, this can be groundbreaking in that it doesn't have to be burdened with having to speak to all these issues. So, um, 
that that was really really exciting and we also pushed the envelope with with full frontal nudity we didn't always get our lead actors to do it but if we had to cast bit parts or whatever we always had full frontal nudity at some point in every episode it was it became like this uh, sort of uh drinking game i guess but you know, I was sick of all of the female nudity that we'd seen over the years. And right. it was time for a little bit of, you know, equal time. And now, you know, it was so shocking at the time. And now, like, every show that you see, straight, gay, whatever. Oh, yeah, you can't turn on HBO. You without, can't turn yeah, on yeah. HBO without. Yeah. And, you know, we uh, just watched Red Sparrow at the movie theater. And there's a moment of full frontal male nudity in that. And I was like, okay, it's 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 oh. really mainstream. I haven't seen that yet. But well, I'm, now you have a reason to go. Buy my ticket. <laughs> uh, I have to say I'm, I am amused by the phrase full frontal and <laughs> bit part in the same <laughs> sentence. <laughs> okay. Here's a funny story. Okay. All right. Uh, I won't say specifically what scene or whatever, but there was one sequence in a season of Dante's Cove where uh, one of the bit players uh, had been cast and it, okay, it was in a sex club sequence. So there were others as well sure. in that scene. But this was the featured one where one of our lead characters was going to be seducing him. Okay, but in the scene, he was going to be full frontal. We rehearsed it with robes, very professional, everything. We finally get ready to actually roll the cameras. We clear the set. Nobody who's not necessary to be there uh, has to go. Takes off the robe. And unfortunately... We discovered at that moment that this poor individual was not only not very well endowed, but I couldn't even see anything. <laughs> oh my God! This is the this is the real dirt from Dante's Cove. Yes. So, oh my God, what are we gonna do? And um, and the script supervisor just her jaw just dropped to the floor, and she's looking at me like, oh my God. And so I go cut. And luckily, we did have some other gentlemen there who uh, were had a little bit more uh, going on. And I was able to, you know, re rearrange things a Wait, little bit. This was like a penis double. Yeah, well, I just I just changed. I just said, you're now going to play this part instead. Oh, gotcha. Gotcha. And uh, so from then on, I learned a very valuable lesson because I, I can sometimes tend to be too. Uh, maybe I'm like the opposite of this whole movement of sexual harassment, everything. I'm so worried about, I'm always so worried about being caught in a situation and like a casting situation or something. So I, you know, I'm always like, I won't do a casting session unless there's other people there. Well, it's just smart. It's yeah, yeah. just smart to yeah. do. And when we would be casting people to do nudity, I would never ask them to disrobe in a casting session. I just found that to be really tacky and, and gross. Yeah. So, um, but I learned from that experience that if they're being hired for nudity, you really kind of do need to see what you're Working, getting. Yeah. So after that, I talked to, lawyers and casting directors and everybody and we and they came up with a very good plan which i thought was very smart okay if it's a callback situation and you're very close to getting being cast for this nude role 
you would come to the casting session with a selfie of yourself nude, which you would then show to the casting director and the director on your phone. You wouldn't have to email it to us or have it in our possession in any way. So the, the actor would be in control of that image. But we would have the satisfaction of knowing what we're getting sure. ahead of time. And that's what and that's what happened after that. What, you know, one of the hallmarks of this show is that we uh, frequently l- look behind the veil of how projects are made. And I think this is a very interesting way of how to handle nudity so that everyone is comfortable yeah. uh, in a smart and savvy way. It's also shocking that in over 30 episodes of Dead for Filth, this is the first ta- <laughs> first tale of penis crisis we've well, ever had. Exactly. But, there you go. Um, I'm, gl- I'm glad I could bring something fresh to the table. Well, <laughs> I had no doubt. Uh, but that show ended up having uh, quite a bit of cult prestige. I know that um, you shot it, correct me if I'm wrong, primarily in Hawaii? We did the first season in uh, Ixtapa. No, I'm sorry, in uh, in the Caribbean uh, on Grand Turk. And then season two and three were in Hawaii. You, you can't go wrong. No, yeah. it was uh, it, all three were beautiful, you know, seasons to work on. I will say the Caribbean was... You know, the little island that we were on had absolutely nothing. I mean, literally, if you needed a paperclip, it had to be flown in. Uh, And then but then Hawaii was the complete opposite. I mean, you know, very film savvy. And, um, you know, it was the complete opposite. We were we were shooting season two um, and staying in Turtle Bay Resort in the north shore of Oahu. And. There was this guy at the hotel. This is like a you know five star resort hotel. It was incredible. We had no business being there except that we just had so many rooms to book that they gave us a deal. Um, but there was this really strange guy who kept you know I kept seeing in the lobby and in the elevator, and he seemed like a bum, and he was very strange, matted hair in the back, and. It turned out, I went to see this movie a few months later called um, Saving Sarah Marshall, I think is the name of it. And the guys in the movie, it was Russell Brand. <laughs> and what? they were shooting the movie there at the time. While you were doing Dodgers Go. While we Gove. were doing Dodgers Go. And, and, and Russell Brand was new to me at that time. So it was just so crazy. But you can imagine uh, running into him in a hotel and thinking, not knowing who he is. Right. I love the idea that Saving Sarah Marshall and Dante's Cove were parallel productions. Yes. From that. That's really cool. The other parallel thing was that um, Lost was also shooting on the island. And we had booked this lagoon to shoot at. And we arrived. I had scouted it. It looked absolutely gorgeous. We arrived. There's a giant submarine surfaced in this lagoon. And I'm like what the hell and they go oh yeah that's lost it's just a fake top of a submarine and i go well we need to lose that it can't be in our shots and they go uh no it can't move (laughs) so uh we had to rearrange our shots and uh, crop it out (laughs) well that's i guess when you do battle with jj abrams Um, (laughs) but so the show has has its fans obviously and i know that uh some of them are very dedicated, as I'm sure you're aware. Oh, yeah. Uh, and in recent years, there's even been talk about maybe coming back. Well, there was talk about it. Um, Here TV, which uh, were, was the network behind it, and they really haven't had the production funds to go back into production on it. And they tried a Kickstarter campaign, which didn't work. Mm-hmm. unfortunately but scripts have been written and it's quite good and i keep hoping that something will eventually happen someday but um 
but it's a lot of years have gone by. So uh, I just don't know. But the the latest there were there was a season four scripts that were written sort of contemporaneously to the series, which I wasn't so crazy about. Um, uh, and I really don't want to go into why, only because if it ever does get made, it'll be a spoiler. Um, but then the more recent scripts that were written or when they did this Kickstarter campaign was basically a next generation idea, which right. was brand new characters, brand new everything. So, uh, but in the spirit of, and still taking place on the island. And it did bring back the grace, the character of grace, um, our, our main witch. Um, but you know, I just, I just keep hoping that something will happen, but as, as more and more and more time goes by, I'm just not sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you're out there and you're a Dante's Cove fan, uh, and, and you were, Wondering and hoping, right to the powers that be, and, and maybe we'll see. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and of course, in a career of uh, over 35 projects and counting, as you said, um, it would be impossible for us to sit and talk about everything. So there will, we're going to hit some of the <laughs> Sam Irvin greatest hits. And I know that some of my fans uh, and listeners would be quite upset if I didn't talk to you about your work with the Mistress of the Dark herself. <laughs> um, so talk to me a little bit about working with Elvira and Elvira's Haunted Hills. And of course, you got to work with the creator of Rocky Horror, Richard O'Brien, on that project. Yeah, talk about a dream project. Good Lord in heaven. Uh, so this is how it happened. Um, my first feature, Guilty as Charged, uh, came out. Um, I went to a party at Terry Sweeney's house. He's the guy who was, he was a regular on Saturday Night Live. He always did Nancy Reagan and drag. He was the one, I think the, the first and, and maybe only openly gay male member, cast member on Saturday Night Live that I'm aware of. And ironically enough, was just in an episode of um, the Versace uh, series last week. And I hear he's going to be back again this week. Anyway, Terry is absolutely phenomenal. Very funny guy. And his uh, husband, Lanier Laney, is his writing partner. They were both comedy writers on Saturday Night Live. And they were writers on Man TV for many years. Anyway, Lanier and I went to school together at the University of South Carolina. So it's all big, you know, it's all interconnected in one way or another. So I go to uh, their place for this party, and that's where I meet Cassandra Peterson, who's Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. A huge fan of her, huge fan of her first movie, Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. And... I, you know, I'm basically genuflecting and <laughs> she and she says, so what do you do? And I, oh, I'm a director. I did this. I recently did this film Guilty as Charged. She goes, oh, my God, I saw that. I love that film. I've been wanting to meet you because if I ever do another Elvira movie, I want you to direct it. And I'm like, what? Uh, I, I didn't even know what to say. And A, I didn't believe her. I just thought, well, this is Hollywood speak. Sure. And so anyway, um, I ended up getting to know her a little bit. I had her come in and do a one day cameo in another film that I did a Showtime 
um, whodunit thriller called Acting on Impulse about a scream queen who's been accused of murdering her producer. Uh, it was Linda Fiorentino and Nancy Allen. And and I had and Cassandra came in to play a bouncer at a, at a country western bar and she wore a big Dolly Parton wig. And um, so I did get to know her a little bit. But I can't say, you know, we were like best friends or anything, but she obviously knew I was, you know, loved her and all of that. So many years go by and I finally uh, get a call out of the blue from her and she said, hey, we're finally going to do another Elvira movie and I'm meeting people um, to possibly direct it and I want you to come in and have a meeting with us. So I went in and she hands me the script to Elvira's Haunted Hills and she goes, now this is a spoof of the Vincent Price, Edgar Allan Poe, Roger Corman movies of the 60s like Pit and the Pendulum and House of Usher. Are you familiar with those films? And I go, um, <laughs> am I familiar? Okay, here is Vincent Price's monologue at the climax of Pit and the Pendulum. Are you ready? Go. Do you know where you are, Bartolome? You are about to enter hell. Hell, the Neverworld, the Infernal Region, the Abode of the Damned, a place of torment, Gehenna, Naraka, the Pit, and the Pendulum, the razor edge of destiny, thus the condition of man bound on an island from which he can never hope to escape, surrounded by the waiting pit of hell, which must destroy him finally. And then she said, you're hired. <laughs> So um, that is literally how I got the job. I have to say, uh, just briefly interjecting, anytime anyone uh, does Vincent Price on the show, <laughs> I like because uh, when David Delval was on, he uh, <laughs> everyone kind of hits the accents the way he does. You know, the, the, the intense emphasis, and it's it's a delight to me. I just said, mm. yeah. So she had already gone to Romania to scout castles. Um, as you do. As you do. And I was like, I've shot in Romania. I did the two Oblivion films there, and I know what it's like, and I've gone to those castles. And most of them are at the top of mountains. They're very inaccessible. There's no heating. They're freezing cold. Many of them are kind of empty. They don't have hardly any furnishings. Some of them don't have electricity. Some of them don't have running water. It's like, I don't know that you really want to go shoot in those castles. Um, and I said, and if we're spoofing Roger Corman, he wasn't shooting in castles. He was shooting on sound stages, and the exterior of the castles were these great matte paintings and, and whatnot. And so the reason to go to Romania is the cheap labor, and we could you know, build incredible sets. And I convinced her to go in a completely opposite direction. And that's what we did. And we, um, I got the, one of the production design people who did the Oblivion films, uh, Radu Korchaba. I got him on the phone and I said, you know, I've sent him all the Roger Corman films. And I said, we need sets like this. And I said, now look at the climax of Pit and the Pendulum. There's, you know, they obviously built the slab and they built the pendulum and they built a little bit of the wall, but the, in the really wide shots, it's extended on all sides by matte paintings. And mm -hmm. so, and Radu says, oh, well, we've got some great old school matte painters here. You know, we'll be able to do that. And I said, great. So then we finally, you know, we ex exchange sketches and all sorts of stuff and they're starting to get to work on things. And we get, we finally get over there 
And Radu says, I, you know, come, uh, we get to the studio and he goes, okay, so I've got some bad news and some good news. Um, the bad news is that the, all the matte painters that I had in mind have all passed away. There's just nobody left of that old school kind of thing. He said, but I have some good news. Come with me. And we walk on to the soundstage where he has built <laughs> the entire Pit in the Pendulum dungeon from ceiling to to pit in, you know, full scale. He just it, took it upon himself to do this. Yeah. I mean, I, I couldn't believe it. It it actually recalled the day that I walked on to like the J, these James Bond sets that are so incredible at Pinewood Studios in London. It was that elaborate and crazy and then we he takes us to the you know the the main room of the castle with the staircase going up and and these massive absolutely gorgeous beautiful sets and i was just in heaven and to be able to create everything from the ground up like I'd done on Oblivion and, you know, only a few times in my career, we had the luxury of being able to do that. It was just incredible. It was just so incredible because on most of these low budget films, you're just, you know, you're just renting people's homes or a location. Yeah, yeah. You're just shooting where you can get and it's already kind of art directed for you. Right. You might be able to bring in a few things and change a few things, but you're not going to start, you know, painting walls or really changing it up that much. But this was this was an opportunity to really design it from the ground up. And it was it was just so much fun from a visual standpoint. And then, as you say, working with. Cassandra and Richard O'Brien of Rocky Horror fame, who was playing the Vincent Price character in the movie. And he's a big, giant Vincent Price fan and knew all of his films. And and Cassandra knew Vincent. And we ended up dedicating the movie to Vincent. I mean, it was just it was just sheer bliss the entire time. It was incredible. And do you think there will ever be a third Elvira movie? Well, funny you should say that. <sighs> well, okay, here's the sad story. Um, Cassandra and I collaborated on a script called Elvira versus the Vampire Vixens. And it is hilarious. And I would so kill to direct it someday. And Cassandra's gotten a little cold feet she uh about doing another film she's very nervous if she were to do a third film it's got to top the other two kind of thing and she's a little nervous that uh she is a little bit older now and with digital shooting is harder to disguise and all these little you know insecurities of hers that i treat, keep trying to kick her in the butt and say you're crazy you look more beautiful now than ever she does and but it just doesn't seem to be happening now um one of the other things that is working against us is that her very good friend Paul Rubens of Pee Wee Herman fame did a Netflix film his his I guess it was his third Pee Wee film was it yes, third yeah, or yeah. whatever Pee Wee's Big Holiday or yes whatever, yeah. and uh he got paid a lot of money and the budget on that was a much bigger budget than either of the Elvira films ever could imagine even having. Right. And so, um, unfortunately now 
Cassandra has it in her mind that, you know, if we're going to do an Elvira film, I want to do it right. I want to have the money to do it. And so it's going to take a, you know, a Netflix or somebody with deep pockets to come in and and uh, and get this done. And I hope 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 it'll happen. But um, again, it's it's one of those projects like Dante's Cove that I keep hoping will happen. And the more time that goes by, I'm getting more more nervous nervous that it's not going to happen. Well, benefactors, rich people, <laughs> anyone out there, don't you want to give Elvira your money? That's right. <laughs> it would please me, if no one else, to know that there was an Elvira trilogy in the world. Exactly. Uh, so I'm going to ask the, uh, there's this question that John Waters always says, comes up in interviews when you've been making movies long enough, where an interviewer asks, well, which of your films is your favorite or which movie do you wish more people had seen? And he, he always says, you know, and you're supposed to say the one that was the least popular or whatever. <laughs> um, and I've, I've always been fascinated because he, br- he tends to bring it up, I think, more than he gets asked the question, which is why I, I, I think of him in relation to it. But as someone who has made over 30 films, surely there are projects that are nearer and dearer to your heart than others. And is there a movie that you did that you particularly love that you wish more people had seen or you would just like uh, to reintroduce to, to audiences because you've got a captive listener base right now? So, <laughs> Okay, well, it's so hard when people ask, you know, what's your favorite project or, you know, whatever, because it's like, it's like trying to pick a favorite kid yeah, or your favorite pet. You know, it's like they, they all have a special place in your heart for one reason or another. Um, obviously a movie like Elvira's Haunted Hills is pretty freaking special. Um, and I urge anyone who hasn't seen it to, to check that out. Um, but there is one that kind of got lost in the shuffle, and it was it was a film called Out There, and it was made for Showtime and in 1995. And uh, just recently, got um, it's available on Amazon Prime streaming for free, so you have absolutely no excuse not to check it out. Yeah, free is my favorite price. Yes. Yeah. And... It's a really fun UFO comedy that stars Billy Campbell, Mr. Sexy Billy Campbell from Rocketeer. And it also has this incredible cast of people that we put together for it that I'm really proud of. We had Rod Steiger come in for a day. We had uh, um, Jill St. John. We had June Lockhart. We had Bob Bacardo from Star Trek. We had... Uh, Carl Striken, who was Lurch in the Adams Family movies, and he was in my Oblivion films as Gaunt, The Undertaker. And we, it, it, the list just goes on and on and on. There's one, uh, and, uh, I, I mean, everybody's in it. Um, but there's one actor who at the time was not all that famous, but now, of course, everyone knows him. We were shooting the film at CBS Radford in Studio City, and there was a series being made there at the time called Hearts of Fire. And um, one of the character, one one of the characters in the series was a guy named Billy Bob Thornton. So uh, the producer of our movie, Larry Estes, um, knew Billy Bob because he had he had helped finance. Uh, uh, one false move, which 
was Billy Bob Thornton's uh, screenplay, and Billy Bob also had a part in the film. And it was a big art, art house hit, and it was kind of an early breakthrough for Billy Bob. So in the commissary one day, we're having lunch, and Larry sees Billy Bob, and he goes, oh, come on over and join us for lunch. And so we're talking about the film, and Larry says to me, you know, I, Billy Bob, he, he's so great. He should play this cameo of this weird guy in the jail cell when Billy Campbell gets thrown in jail overnight. He has to share the jail cell with this guy. And I'm like, yeah, that would be great. Let's have, let's have you come in and do that. So he came in for a day did that part and brought so much to it, had all these incredible ideas. And I was, it was just a whirlwind. It was incredible. But while we were shooting, he kept telling us about this film that he was about to go off and do. And he kept going into this very strange voice. And of course this was Sling Blade. <laughs> and, and we were all thinking, well, this sounds interesting, Billy Bob. Really, you know, good luck with that. And of course that became his oh, real he, big breakthrough. He had great luck with that. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but anyway, it was incredible to, to get a chance to work with him before he sort of, you know, exploded. And uh, so he's in it as well, but it's a, it's a really fun, um, oh, and Julie Brown is in it. Oh, who yeah. Icon. Is, you know, she's become my best friend in the entire world. I just had lunch with her yesterday. And she is one of the funniest people on the planet. And that was the first time I got to work with her. And she was just brilliant. And um, so anyway, there's lots of reasons to see it. And it, it's, it's a lot of fun. Those are all some really great reasons, I think. Yeah. Out there. Out and it's there. on Amazon Prime. Free. Uh and of course, as, as we said, we could spend all day talking about uh, your, your films. And I know that you probably have stories for all of them. Uh, but unfortunately, we don't have all that time. I, you know, we'll just have to bring you back at some point. Um, but before we head off into the night, you did write a book. And I want you to tell me a little bit about that. Yes, I, uh, I did a book called Kay Thompson from funny face to Eloise. And it was a biography of this incredible entertainer, brilliant writer named Kay Thompson, who wrote the Eloise children's books about the little girl who lives at the Plaza hotel. Right. And was also one of the stars of funny face with Audrey Hepburn and Fred Astaire. And she plays the fashion magazine editor who opens the film with the big musical number called think pink. And that's, those are the two things that she's most known for. But uh, she was an incredible force behind the scenes. Um, she was head of the vocal department at MGM during the 40s and was the arranger and vocal coach for Judy Garland and Frank Sinatra and Lena Horne and all the greats. She was a huge nightclub star in the 1950s with Kay Thompson and the Williams Brothers. She discovered... Andy Williams and his three brothers and took them out on the road. And she and Andy Williams, even though she was 20 years older than him, he was 18 and she was pushing 40. They were a big romance, a big romance happened between them. And their affair ended up lasting 10 years until he married Claudine Langer in the 60s. And uh, and she was Liza Minnelli's godmother and guided Liza through her entire career. Um, and, and helped Liza get out from under the shadow of her mother, Judy Garland, and, and became an icon in her own right. Um, and all of that was due to Kay, um, styling her, giving her her own identity. Um, 
she Kay directed the John F. Kennedy inaugural gala that had Frank Sinatra and all her friends. Um, she just did so many amazing things that people don't know about and was very influential with music and fashion and everything that I just decided, the, you know, I have to write a book about this and make people aware of these things that they don't know about. And so it was an incredible experience. I thought when I was writing it, you know, I'd probably have to self-publish. She's not well known enough. Um, but lo and behold, we I got it a literary agent. We took it out to our top three publishers. It got into a bidding war and Simon and Schuster ended up publishing it in a huge way and uh, got this big, giant um, release. And it was it was really great. It and then Liza Minnelli, uh, right around the time it was coming out, decided to do a tribute concert to Kay Thompson. And she recreated her nightclub act from the 50s wow. and put it on Broadway as Liza's at the Palace. And they, she wanted to call it Kay is at the Palace, but they wouldn't let her, the financial, you know, the, the backers, because they wanted the Liza name. But the entire, you know, show was about, was was Liza playing Kay Thompson. And she had four boys playing the Williams brothers. And um, I served on that as a historical consultant and ended up winning the Tony Award for best theatrical event of the year. And um, so that whole experience was just incredible. It was it was really amazing. That's cool. And I did not know about the Tony connection. So that's yeah, really amazing. So it, was, it was really amazing. And I can actually say that Liza was in my living room <laughs> going through all my scrapbooks of photos of Kay Thompson. I mean, it was like, you know, that in, in and of itself was worth worth it all. Collective gay <laughs> gasps across the land. There you go. Uh, so, you know, just in, in a, a brief overview, you've directed dozens of movies. You've written a very popular book. Uh, you've served as producer to a film that ended up winning Oscar. Uh, you were also producer of, uh, of Broken Hearts Club that is a, a gay classic. Uh, you have just worked on this amazing document that has preserved the history of Frankenstein, the true story, uh, and all these other wonderful things that you've done. Uh, what is something about Sam Irvin that people don't know that you want them to? That I'm still in love with the guy that I fell in love with in 1982, named Gary Bowers, and we just celebrated 36 years together, and we finally got married about a year and a half ago to make it legal, <laughs> and uh, we didn't want to rush into anything, uh, nor did the government of this country. Sure, sure. <clears throat> but never mind, we, it, can, it can happen now. But... Um, no, that, uh, you know, every, no matter how much exciting work and everything that I do, it all comes back to, to Gary. He's the, he's my rock and I love him. He, I wouldn't be able to do the things that I do if he wasn't holding down the fort and taking care of our dogs and all those things. And, you know, I just, I, I couldn't do what I do without him. Well, Gary, I hope you're listening because you got a real great guy here. Uh, what's next, Sam? What are you working on next? I leave this Saturday to go back to Louisville, Kentucky. That's right. To direct uh, another Lifetime thriller. This one, a little bit in the genre of 
um, sort of misery or some of the hag exploitation movies like Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Oh, exciting. Die, Die, My Darling. So um, I'm excited. This is going to be a fun one. Oh, well, keep your eyes peeled. Uh where can people find you, Sam, on in the world, on the internet? I'm. Uh, I, you can find me on Facebook. I ex- accept any f- any friend who wants to be a friend of mine. I'm a friend of theirs. Um, I'm very. I put my email address, and everything, right on there. I, <laughs> I make it easy for people to find me because I don't. I don't want to ever find out that. Uh, they, you know, there was some great project or something that I could have been involved in, but they didn't know how to find me. <laughs> and I'm on IMDb. I even have my uh, email address and stuff on there as well. Oh, that's brave. <laughs> it's very brave. <laughs> uh, Sam, thank you so much for taking time to come and talk today and uh, sharing stories from your very storied and awesome career. And I just know that there's for every great thing that we talked about, there's so much more that we, we could go on about for days. I, I adore you. I, I love getting to see you and, and catching up. And I'm so excited for uh, your Rondo nominations. So thank you again. Thank you, Michael. I adore you. And I'm so excited about your career as well. And we, you know, someday we're going to have to turn the tables and let me interview you on this show. Well, you know what? Uh, I am I am down. That's all. What can I say? I would be honored. <laughs> uh, thank you again. Uh, please, listeners, go out, find uh, Sam's work. As you have heard, there is uh, a lot out there, and I guarantee it is all amazing and magical. And check out Out There. Uh, as he said, you can watch it for free. That's a good starting point. Watch Elvira's Haunted Hills. Check out Dante's Cove and pick up a copy of Little Shop of Horrors. It is an award-nominated magazine right now, and he could be winning by the time you hear this. So please, Uh, And hats off to you, Sam Irvin. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Michael. Uh, This has been Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti. Yours always in glam and gore. Good night and good luck. Good luck.